truth of the matter was, stories was everything, and everything was stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they were in the world. It was their understanding of themselves. Well, uh, when I was nine years old, I found my first arrowhead with my father. He was an arrowhead collector, and so was my football kit coach in high school. So we did all that together. And Most of the arrowheads you find out in the countryside are broken, half in two. And people say, oh, it's broken, that's terrible. But to me, that means a lot to me. That means that that, that projectile was on the end of an arrow. It penetrated the body of a deer, maybe, hit a bone and broke right in front of where it was hafted. So that to me, that has that thing has a history that a whole arrowhead doesn't have. So it's, it, I think it's the, the wonderment of being out there, of seeing nature, and visualizing what what used to be. The Rosetta Stone was buried for two thousand years before somebody found it. And I said in my book, "Don't you know that guy's proud? The guy that carved that thing." Well, it was 1988 when I. When I acquired the treasure chest and started filling it up with things, I paid $25,000 for the treasure chest, and I started filling it up with 265 gold coins. Most of them are American eagles and some double eagles, mostly double eagles. My goal never changed. My goal was to take that treasure chest out in a very special place and put it there. I've never said that I buried it, but I've never said that I didn't bury it. I just don't want to give that as a clue and let people go looking for it. If you can find the treasure chest and open that lid for the first time, it's, it's going to be the most wonderful thing that you ever saw. I crafted a poem that's in my book. It has nine clues in it. And uh, I changed that poem over, over a 15-year period. Uh, people read that poem and they say, he sat down and wrote that poem in 15 minutes. Well, it took me 15 years. The, the poem is really not so much written as it is an, an architectural plan. It's been crafted. It, it reads very simple. Well, here, I see one there. Do you want to yeah, hand me that book. I, I think I... As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasure's bowl, I can keep my secret where and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk. Put in below the home of brown. From there it's no place for the meek. The end is ever drawing nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to seek. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answer I already know. I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good. If your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you title to the gold. I dare you to, to go get it. If you can find it, you can have it. And nobody knows where it is but me. And if a train runs over me this afternoon, it'll, it'll go to my grave with me.
My name is Forrest Fenn. Uh, we're in my home at, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've lived in it since 1988, and uh, I, I think it'll be my last abode that I'll enjoy. Uh, the Santa Fe Trail runs about 50 feet from my library window, and I have a, an old 1880 Army ammunition wagon sitting right in the middle of the Santa Fe Trail. It goes right through my pond, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm very happy in, where I am. Santa Fe is a wonderful place to live, and I'll be 83 uh, in two weeks. I'm, I'm going out at the top of my game. You know, some people are collectors and some people are not. My wife is not a collector, but I, I collected everything. I used to catch, collect mat, match folders and, and uh, beer steins, and I don't, I don't know what it is, but if you, if you have an old photograph of your mother, what makes you like that photograph? Antiques, there's the mystery of it, the, the unknown that, that plays on your mind. The mystery of where they were and who made them and what they did. And you can, you can conjure back anything you want to, about that. It's the thrill of discovery, the thrill of the chase. On we go, the virtue lies in the journey, not the price. And I believe that. There's a lot of people that really enjoy the idea of a treasure, you know, like just like I enjoy the idea of it. Uh, from my perspective, of course, I'm a goldsmith and having 20 pounds of gold to work with, that's my palate. That's what I enjoy and that's what I do. So that would be like extreme freedom for me from $1,300 an ounce gold, you know, which is what I have to pay today. My name is Mark Howard. I'm, we're here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, or outside thereof, and this is in my house. And as far as the treasure goes, uh, I'm going to probably look again, although the past two times, because it's whipped me, I've said to my wife, you know, maybe I shouldn't go again. And uh, it only takes me a couple of weeks to say, you know, I think I got to go again. I like the treasure hunt. It's like when we were kids. I mean, uh, you know, the... Um, like Treasure Island and all the stories that you read when you were a kid and you thought, God, I just love to go out and do something like that. And this kind of fed into that. And I said, okay, I was what, 57? I'm gonna be 60. I said, if I'm gonna do this kind of thing, I better do it now. There's some historical coins in there, some historical artifacts in there. All those interest me too. I, I really love uh, antique stuff. And it, one of the things I really want is that damn box. I really want that box, because this is from like 1150 A.D. The box is a, a beautiful cast bronze box that I've been told was 11th or 12th century. And it, it's, it's 10 inches by 10 inches and, and 5 inches deep and weighs 42 pounds. It, the, the gold is what makes it heavy. 265 gold coins. Uh, some pre-Columbian gold figures that are 15 or 1,800 years old. There's a wonderful ne uh, necklace in there made of uh, Sinu and Tyrona cultures with carved jade figures and, and carnaline and quartz crystal carved figures. It's wonderful, 2,000 years old. And, you know, it just, it, it's, worth, it's worth looking for. I put a little bracelet in there that I won in a pool game with a guy that it's the cheapest thing in there. It's probably worth 
well, all the notoriety it's had now, it's probably worth 750 bucks. It, it was worth 250 when I put it in the treasure. You can't just go out and buy a bunch of gold nuggets. There are, there are hundreds and hundreds of gold nuggets in that treasure chest. There's a little jar of gold dust from, from Alaska. I couldn't put a Porsche in the box or I'd have done that, you know. I was limited by, by so many cubic inches in that treasure chest. He often says, if it takes 2,000 years for somebody to find it, that's just fine by him. I don't, it's not fine by me, but that's, that's okay. Uh, I think I've only been out of maybe 20 times. Started here in northern New Mexico, and at one point I went as far as, as Yellowstone. Uh, then uh, I went into Colorado, and I'm still kind of bouncing around looking for the treasure. Almost anybody that found it, um, with the exception of the people that are crazy, would probably let him know. Yeah, yeah, I certainly would. Um, I, I, my, my idea is to put Jim Weatherill's bracelet on and walk up to his house, you know, and I can knock on the door and he'd know immediately and I wouldn't have to say a thing and he wouldn't have to say a thing and that way he would never have to say a thing to anybody else either. So, um, but that's, you know, it's a daydream. There's something that I don't know whether it's in the treasure chest or not. It was a crazy idea, but, but going back to the question that you asked earlier, did I want to know if somebody found a treasure chest? So I said, yeah, I do. One reason is so people won't sp be spending all their money looking for something that isn't there anymore. So I put an IOU. I wrote it out an IOU. Take this IOU to, the, to my bank in Santa Fe and collect $100,000. I figured for $100,000, the guy that found a treasure chest would, would not want to keep it secret anymore. So now the IRS is getting the act and everybody knows that, you know, if somebody finds it a thousand years from now, my bank won't be there and there'll be no money in the, in the account even if they did. So I think I took, I think I took that IOU out, but I don't, I don't remember whether I did or not. It's in there in spirit. <laughs> There are two gold nuggets in that treasure chest that weigh more than a troy pound apiece. I used to take them out and hand them to people that almost drop them because they're so heavy. I go on the Today Show, you know, I've been on five times. Talked you into somehow giving us another clue this morning. Well, I'm not gonna put an X on a map for you. <laughs> and I think we'll do it maybe another. And I give clues. The last clue I gave them was that it's not in Utah or Idaho. But that's not going to lead you to the treasure chest. The clue is the treasure is higher than seven than five thousand feet above sea level. The treasure is higher than five thousand feet above sea level. Is that? I think it's in New Mexico. Now the issue was was it buried? And we finally got Forrest to admit that no, it's hidden. So it's quite quite possible it's not buried, just simply hidden. My name is Michael McGarity. I'm a novelist. We're in Cathedral Park which is next to the Basilica, a block from the Santa Fe, famous Santa Fe Plaza. Now, we like to get together once in a while and uh, have lunch and tell stories. Socializing usually is something that happens when somebody throws a party or, or there's some special event to get, to get folks together. But I mean, this is the stuff that myths are made of, that legends are made of, you know. And we've got our share of old mine treasures being hidden on White Sands Missile Range at Victoria Peak or, or down in the Gila. Now we've got the Forest Fen treasure. There have been 
some people very close to the treasure chest. There have been people that figured out the first couple of clues and walked, walked right past the treasure chest. I think it's there. I haven't checked on it, but, but I'm 99.9% .9 sure it's there. He has said publicly that people have come within 500 feet of the treasure. Now, the question is, is that true? I mean, that's a great, that's a great teaser. And I would have used it myself, even if the person that got closer to it was five miles away. You know, <laughs> I still would have said that. If it's found, and I asked, question, I asked him this question, if it's found, how are you going to know it's found? Now, he's convinced that he will be contacted, right? If I found a multi-million dollar treasure, I wouldn't want the IRS to know about it, would yeah. you? No, I'd take it home and I'd sell one gold nugget at a time. <laughs> he's a character, what else can I say? I mean, he's an interesting guy, he has a certain flamboyancy to him. But I put other things in there too. I pulled a couple of hairs out of my head because somebody can, can do a DNA, they can do a carbon-14 test and you know, there's another thing that I put in, in the chest that I've, that I've not told anybody about, and I'm, and I'm saving it for the person that finds the treasure chest. In, in other words, this is not something that I put together in an afternoon, and I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. My name is Mary Wolf. I'm the co-owner of Collected Works Bookstore and Coffee House in downtown Santa Fe, New Mexico. Forrest Fenn has been a loyal and uh, constant uh, customer of the bookstore since the bookstore opened in 1978. I got to know him best probably in 2010 when he came to the store to talk to Dorothy and myself about uh, The Thrill of the Chase, the book that he was about to release and publish. I wrote a book called The Thrill of the Chase, and that's the philosophy that permeates that book. You know, there was a, a lady writer from Austin asked me, said, Mr. Finn, who's your audience for this book? And I said, my audience has ever redneck in Texas with, with a pickup truck and 12 kids. He's lost his job and has a thrill for, to go out and look for things. I said, that's my audience. Throw, throw a bedroll in the back of your truck, get a six-pack, and, and hit the road looking for a fortune. I mean, it's the thrill of the chase. That's what we're talking about. Take your wife and put all, all the kids in the back of the truck and, and head out. Thrill of the Chase has had a huge impact, obviously, on our business. Um, Forrest is not uh, tied to the bookstore in any way contractually. However, he gave us this book to sell. He paid for the first printing and then gave us the book because he didn't want anyone saying that he was making any money from this story, which he hasn't. Um, we've paid for the last printing and we'll pay for the future printings. Um, and we are already in the, the fifth printing coming up, so... We're going through the books. First of all, he can well afford to hide a treasure of, of that value. Um, and what really drives him is to leave a, a lasting mark on a whole generation of people and recreate a love of adventure and a passion for discovery that he has in his own life. And, um, and I think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful story. He has an amazing story. Well, I was born and raised in Temple, Texas, in, in the heart of Texas, 60 miles north of Austin. My father was a school teacher, 
And when he when when I started first grade, he started in the school that I was started first grade in. He was a math teacher, and the next year they promoted him to be the principal. And then I went to a, a junior high school, and he moved over there, and he was my principal again. So I passed all those courses because my father was principal. I'm not sure for any other reason. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw TV in Temple, Texas, there was a big truck out behind on the city square behind the city hall, and they invited people to come in the city hall and look at a television set that was being transmitted from 100 feet away. It wasn't a very good picture, and then a couple of years later, color TV came along, and boy, that'll never work. And I remember riding back to, from Yellowstone to Temple, Texas with my football coach in 1946. We dropped the atomic bomb in Hiroshima. How can we tell when the atomic bomb may explode? And boy, that was the end. The beginning of the end, President Eisenhower told everybody to go out in the backyard and dig a, a bomb shelter and stock it with food for, and, and everybody did. Always remember, the flash of an atomic bomb can come at any time no matter where you may be. Every generation thinks that theirs will be the last. When the born era was invented, everybody said, boy, this is, the end's coming. And then when the Chinese invented gunpowder, that was the end. Santa Fe's a place that attracts unusual people. Uh, and Forrest certainly qualifies in that regard. He's, he's a very unique guy. Uh, uh, his record uh, in the military is just an incredible one. You could call him a war hero. I mean, he, he uh, enlisted in the Air Force. I mean, he can tell his own story. I joined the military on the 6th of September, 1950. The Korean War was, was brand new, and I was going to win the war. I started out a private, and, and I retired 20 years later a major. The military, in all of their wisdom, said that I had an uh, aptitude for uh, electronics. And I didn't have the slightest idea what I was doing. But I went to a advanced radar maintenance school for, for nine months in Bluxy, Mississippi. And I graduated, but I still didn't know what I was doing. I had a mean sergeant that didn't like me, and I didn't like him. So I went down to personnel, and I said, how can I get out of this place? They gave me a bunch of forms to fill out, and I could go to jump school. I could volunteer for submarines or or I could go to pilot training, and I said, I'll take the first one you can get for me. And it was pilot training. So they put me in this little machine. It looked like a, a phone booth turned on its side, and it had a, a stick in it like an airplane has, and it was on springs. If you turn the thing loose, it falls over, and you crashed. So the secret is to hold the airplane steady. And this guy said I was the best that he ever saw doing that. I mean, uh, it was the simplest thing I'd ever been in. <laughs> but, and I said, if that's all there is to it, I'll take it. And so they accepted me into pilot training. Uh, when you're flying fighter airplanes, the old saying is, if, I, if a fighter pilot makes a mistake, he doesn't have to worry about it. But when you get in that airplane all by yourself, it's a whole different ballgame. There's nobody there but you. It'll sober you up. I was in Vietnam for a year. I flew 328 combat missions. I was shot down twice and uh, took battle damage a few times. I lost some roommates. Getting shot down was routine. It was, I didn't get killed, but I had an airplane full of bullet holes and uh, 
it was it was totally destroyed. I did land the thing, but I landed at a little air, airport bin that was used mostly for little Ford air controllers, little putt putt airplanes, and helicopters. And I I put the tail hook down on this F-100 I was flying, and I, I engaged the barrier because I knew I wasn't going to stop otherwise. But I pulled that thing the wrong way, and I I touched down at about 100. And, 50 knots, I guess, and I stopped in less than 200 feet. I came away with the idea that we need to learn to leave other people alone. And I think we probably killed 10 civilians, maybe for every military person we killed, because we didn't, we're dropping bombs and strafing, you don't, you don't see the bodies laying there, but it's a terrible, terrible thing. We need to stop doing that. When I was 27 years old, no college, I was in a fighter squadron in Bitburg, Germany, they took me down to supply, and I checked out an atomic bomb, 61 megaton atomic bomb. I think the bomb at Hiroshima was something like 17,000 tons. Well, this was 61 kiloton. I owned that thing. It had a crew chief like an airplane has a crew chief, and, and it's on a dolly, but the dolly couldn't move one inch unless I was standing there supervising. I was all over Europe and South America and all over this country. and. and uh, we had a gunnery school outside of Tripoli, Libya, about 35 or 40 miles. And on the weekends, I'd get a Jeep and go down in the Sahara Desert where the big tank battles were fought in World War II. And it, it, it's just like they left that country. You know, you can see skeletons laying there and a German helmet and a burned out tank. And bullets laying around, but I can't tell you how many times I, I'd see a hand grenade laying on the ground there with a a flint projectile laying next to it that's 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 years old. You see wars laying on top of wars. They grew me up in the Air Force. You get a haircut once a week, whether you like it or not, and I could see myself growing in the Air Force. They gave me so much authority, you know. I retired, uh, you have to serve 20 years to, to get retired pay, but you have to retire at the end of the month, so it cost me 24 extra days. I served 20 years and 24 days, and I got out the, the first minute I was eligible. I had a wife and two daughters, two young daughters, and my retired pay was 800 bucks a month. Uh, I could get by with that in 1970. We did all right, but I wanted, I wanted to do better than that, and I just wanted to go someplace where the world would stop and let me out. And Santa Fe was the only place I knew where I could wear blue jeans, a short sleeve shirt, and hush puppies and make a living. One of my rules was that I didn't want to do anything where my best customer gave me $100. Talking about a restaurant business, one-hour martinizing. I mean, you go on and on and on. They're labor-intensive. Primary employee doesn't show up. He's drunk or something. I, I was a collector of Indian things and antiques and that sort of thing. So I wanted to deal in luxuries.
I've known about him forever. He's a local legend. He had a, an amazing gallery here in town and really brought it to the ultimate Santa Fe gallery. I, if you had to choose one of the major galleries, he, his gallery would have been the one. J.D. Noble, um, I'm part owner of the Hatsmith of Santa Fe. I was looking for some photos of some old Indians that I knew. I knew Forrest had some photos of these old Indians from Taos. And so I uh, called him up one day and said, hey, I would like to um, have lunch with you and talk about these old Taos Indians. So he says, yeah, yeah, I want to show you something. We had lunch and he says, well, I don't really have any photos that I can help you with, but I do have this. And he unrolls this flyer for the new book on the treasure. And so, man, I am hooked right away. So my trips are no more than usually two days. I'll go in and camp out. If I can't find it in two days, I come back and then I go out again. When you're dealing with luxuries, you're, normally you're dealing with better people. Uh, you're dealing with people that can write a check that won't bounce. I broke all the rules of, of custom. You know, I would take anybody's check for any amount of money. And normally I wasn't interested in looking at a driver's license. And that's heard of. You know, I go to New York today and they won't take my traveler's check. Well, I took a, a check for $375,000 from a man one time and told him I didn't want to see his driver's license. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe I'd take his check. In 17 years in the business, I had two bad checks. The big one was for 600 bucks, And the, the guy that wrote me a check for 600 bucks, I knew it. he did it deliberately, thinking he was going to get by with it. I didn't say anything to him. I didn't call him. I didn't write him a letter. But 30 days later, I sued him for 600 bucks, attorney's fees, interest on a note, and $25,000 punitive damages. He was calling my wife, trying to get her to talk me into dropping my loss. I finally settled with him, but I got... I got attorney's fees, I think it was 75 bucks, and uh, uh, interest on the note was like a uh, buck 75 or something. And I told him, I said, come in my gallery again. I said, I'll take your check for any amount of money. But I said, next time, it's a million dollars punitive damage. I said, because you have a track record. A guy came in my gallery years ago. He had a little tiny human skull about the size of, of a big orange. He said, this is Napoleon's skull. He said, I want $1,000 for it. I said, that can't be Napoleon's skull. It's too small. He said, oh, it was his skull when he was a kid. <laughs> so, you know, that's what you have to put up with when you're a traitor. <laughs> you know, I, I almost bought the skull. <laughs> the story was too good to turn down. <laughs> I ran my gallery for 17 years. And I had my first two shows, I didn't sell anything, not even a book. And I finally decided I had a little bit of money left. I'm going to spend my money on advertising. When that money's gone, I'm going to slam the door and, and leave this town and go do something else, probably flipping hamburgers someplace. I tell, I tell people to, if you have a daydream, then that's where your aptitude is. Go do that. I think what people need to know is... If they know Forrest Fenn, then they know that he's a historian and uh, ethnographer and archaeologist, uh, anthropologist. I think part of it, the one of the main parts of it, is likened to match wits with Forrest. He is, he's very intelligent. He's very logical. He's very creative, and he's very crafty. I had many of the misconceptions that everybody else starts out with. Misconceptions by you have a certain 
perspective. And when you read this book, it's from your perspective that you look at whatever clues are there and then try to find this treasure. But you can't look at it from your perspective. You have to divorce yourself from that and look at it from the perspective of Forrest Fenn. So first you have to know the man, you have to read the book, and then I read every book that he mentioned in the book, you know, including things I hadn't read in years, like Catch-22 and The Great Gatsby. And I looked at each one of them trying to say, okay, is there a clue in each one of these books as well? If you know Forrest, then you know that um, primarily he's an adventurer and a a great explorer of life and a great collector of things. And the thrill of the chase really sums up what his whole life has been about. It's been about pursuing um, the the hard to reach, the going places where other people don't go, obtaining things that other people aren't able to obtain, and doing it in a really loving and careful way. And I think that the treasure is um, just indicative of how Forrest thinks. And he has obviously one of the most amazing personal art collections in the United States. So he was going to leave a legacy behind anyway. But this speaks to his larger desire to leave a legacy for the world. People think I did this for my legacy. And, you know, when you're dead, legacy is not worth much to you when you're dead. So that was never a consideration of mine, really. I don't care if anybody remembers me after I'm gone or, or you don't have to acknowledge me while I'm alive as far as I'm concerned. I used that word with him, legacy, and he kind of gave me this strange look like, no, you know, it's not about legacy. I'm just having fun, you know. And I said, oh, wait a minute, Forrest, come on. There's a little bit of the legacy thing, leaving something behind. I mean, this is of legendary proportion. That's what legacy means. Let's talk about it from that standpoint. I mean, taking a, 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 a beautiful antique bronze box and filling it with jewels and coins and gold and nuggets and burying it and writing a poem so that people can go and find it. If that's not about legacy, tell me what it is. When did you find out you had cancer? Uh, I learned I had cancer in 1988. I had a, a small pain in my left groin and it persisted, it persisted for a, a number of months. So I was talking to a, doc, a doctor at a party one day. He says, we ought to go over and check it out. So the, the first time I knew I was in trouble, the nurse, they gave me some stuff to drink and they were looking at my kidneys on this machine. The nurse says, hey girls, come over here and look at this. And I had a dead kidney. And my doctor said, well, normally just because your kidney's not working is not reason enough to take it out. But since you have a pain, Let's take it out. And I said, what are the chances of being cancer? He said, 5%. One hour operation turned into five, and, and he gave me a 20% chance of living for three years. I was standing right here in my office with Ralph Lauren one time. He was a friend and a client. And I had something that he wanted, and I told him I didn't want to sell it. He said, you got so many of them, he said, you can't take it with you. And without thinking, I, I, I said to, to him, I said, well, if I can't take it with me, then I'm not going. And that night I started thinking about it, and, you know, I had a 20% chance to live. That's not too good. My father called me on the phone one night. He had, been, he had 
pancreas cancer. They gave him six months to live. And 18 months later, he called me on the phone and said that he was going to take 50 sleeping pills that night. I had an airplane. I said, I'll be there first thing in the morning. He said, that's too late. And it was. And I respected him for, because he did it on his own terms. Why do you have to do it on somebody else's terms all the time? So I decided that if I was going to die, and the odds certainly were said that I was going to, then I appreciated what my father did. And the last thing I'm, I want to do is die in a hospital bed. Jim, you know, I said in, in my, my book, uh, uh, a hospital bed, bed gives you temporary postponement, and you're miserable the whole time. The appointment originally said, leave, take the chest and leave my bones alone. I, I ruined my original story because I got well. Why not hide this, a treasure chest full of wonderful things and let somebody else have the same thrill that I've had all of these years, for, for 70 years, 75 years? The gold in this treasure chest weighs 20.2 troy pounds. It's full of emeralds and diamonds and sapphires and 200 and something rubies. And I hid the treasure chest. Walking back to my car, it had a strange sensation. I said, I asked myself out loud, I said, Forrest, did you really do that? And I, I started laughing at myself out loud. There was nobody around. And, and, but in the back of my mind, I told myself, if I'm sorry later, I can go back and get it. But then the more I thought about it and it started evolving in my mind, I, I became really proud of myself. You know, once in a while you do something that you're really proud of. It, happened, it hasn't happened to me too many times. But I, I was really glad that I hid that treasure chest. My wife doesn't know within 18 months of when I hid the treasure chest. But the clues are there. They're not easy to follow, but certainly not impossible. But I have no doubt that it's out there. I know that some people think that there's no way that he, he could have done this or would have done this. And I think that people who believe that don't understand uh, what drives Forrest. He really, really is driven by wanting kids to have the same sort of experiences today that he had growing up, even though they're growing up in a very different world. And so he really wants kids to get out and bond with their families and go out and explore nature and, and get out there and experience the thrill of the chase. Uh, we have a problem in this country with our youth today. We're obese, graffiti, drive-by shootings, disrespect, and, and the, the teenagers today are going to be our senators and presidents in the future. So what are we doing to prepare those people? And I've got to blame the churches. I blame school teachers. I certainly blame archaeologists who have a wonderful thing to offer, but they, they're so full of jargon. And, you know, everybody has their thing going, and uh, we're mostly oblivious of the problems are something that, that somebody else sees, but um, it's not my problem. That's the attitude today, and I think that's a terrible attitude. So 
in, in a very small way, I was hoping to get kids off the couch, out of the game rooms and away from their texting machines and out to smell the sunshine and see what's going on uh, out in the countryside. I think that's forest hole intention. Get their kids, take them out and show them the outdoors and have an adventure. It doesn't matter if you find it. Uh, I've had some amazing uh, times out in the mountains uh, just looking for it. We have heard numerous times, this is the first time we've taken a family vacation. All of us. This is the first time that we've all gone somewhere and spent this much time together. Um, and we hear that from the kids too. Like, this is the first time we've ever gone anywhere with mom and dad and done what mom and dad are doing. And, um, and that's really powerful. And Forrest loves to hear those stories. I mean, it, frankly, there's just as much chance of a six-year-old from Kansas finding it as, you know, there is somebody in Santa Fe who's been dedicating their months to figuring out the puzzle. I mean, if they wander across it, they, they will find it. Again, let me say that I'm not, I'm not thinking about something, let's, let's go do it this afternoon. I'm thinking about a thousand years from now. Nothing has happened that, that was not predictable. I've called 911 three times. They arrested a guy at my gate, put him in handcuffs last week, took him off to, to the jail. But I've had death threats. You know, when you look at politicians, they get death threats every day. And, you know, you can't uh, guess what these people are going to do. And people get in their head, it's my treasure. I deserve it. I'm going to go get it, you know, and... That can be a little little scary. So I'll be 83 years old on the 22nd of this month, and I told a guy the other day, if, if torture and death are the only two things you can threaten me with, you're in trouble. I've been down the road a few miles, you know, and I don't want to leave my wife with all of these things. The vultures would circle this house, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm selling some things now. I'm not tearing down my walls, but uh, things that are laying down, I'm just trying to, to ease the pain for my heirs. <laughs> I think over spring break in Santa Fe, there were about 6,500 people in Santa Fe related to the treasure chest. And this summer, before the summer is over, I've spent some time estimating, I think there'll be 40,000 people will have been looking for the treasure chest in New Mexico, Colorado, Montana, and Wyoming. On the one hand, let's give them, give them an award for increasing tourism in the community, right? I was, I was walking in a shopping center uh, just after the book came out, and there was this huge 4x4 extended cab Dodge 350 Ram Charger, and in the back was a four-wheel drive all-terrain vehicle, and this big Texan gets out. And it was a Texan because he had license plates from Texas. And he says, you tell me how to find Forrest Fan. I'm looking for Forrest Fan. I'm here to look for that treasure. We have met people from probably four continents and ten countries who have come here. And we have met families, older people, young people, college kids who've gotten together, um, people who've started teams working on the puzzle, crowdsourcing, <laughs> you know, uh, solutions to the puzzle and then sending delegates out here to look. I run into the people who've told me they've spent their life savings coming out here. Literally coming from Florida, one guy came, 
spent at least $12,000 on airfare. That was his life savings. A lady come in from Mississippi. She was an old client. And she said, well, when I find forest treasure, and I don't she's 40 pounds overweight, five years older than me, and she's rich, okay? And I said, well, you go, you know, you go, girl. What the hell? I'm right at 22,000 emails from people related to the treasure chest. They tell me where they are and where they're going and want to know if they're hot or cold. Thousands of emails from people that thank me for getting them out of the house. send me an email and said my brother I had not spoken to my brother for 12 years he called me on the phone and said let's go look for the treasure chest and so they're connected again you know I, I see a lot of that that kind of thing that's very rewarding you know it's a it's 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 a byproduct of something that I did that 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 is I'm the big winner in this thing because I I, f I feel a sense of satisfaction the best one that I heard was a, a gentleman who said that if he found the treasure, he would give the bracelet back to Forrest, and then he was going to rehide the treasure somewhere else and write his own book and just kind of keep it going because he was having so much fun looking for it, and he'd been looking for it for six months, and he kind of wanted to find it, but he kind of didn't want that to end. So come to my shop. I've had have the guy that I mentioned from Florida came to my shop. He brought me a a detailed map laid out on a piece of cardboard, told me what he was thinking and said, will you go f get this for me and, you know, split the treasure with me? And I said, look, that's, that's not my thing. I know where I want to go. And he, he got offended and left. You know, I really kind of wonder if uh, some people have found it. I, my last adventure out somebody had beat me to it to the spot i had been there once before but i was unprepared and i came back and uh, waited for the weather to get warm and went back and somebody had left a message that they had been there already done in pink chalk with a big x on a rock and said it is not here <laughs> i think it's a diversion because i still want to go back to there because there's many many uh, i can't tell you where it's at people Somebody else already figured it out too. So we, were, whoever it was, we were both thinking and putting the clues. And that's just it, is interpreting the clues, which are so vague. I've, I've given clues to, to everybody. I've never given a clue to an individual. The first clue that I gave that wasn't in my poem because this, uh, I made this guy mad and, and he demanded another clue. And I said, okay, the treasure chest is hidden more than 300 miles west of Toledo. I don't think he knew that I was pulling his leg. There was a guy out here someplace uh, dug a hole 18 inches deep and, and 9 inches wide, and they arrested him. Charges for digging near a Descanso, looking for Forrest Fenn's box of gold and jewels. Please tell me what's going on here. Uh, 9 inches wide and 18 inches deep, and they arrested the, They were All over the paper, they're quoting the police officer they're going to prosecute this guy. There are people saying, oh, wait, wait, wait. 
he's off sending these people off to trample our wilderness, right? What wilderness? You know, come on. About the only real wilderness we have, most people can't get to, and that's up in the Pecos, which recently burned. You know, most of what we have in terms of national forest is not wilderness. But, oh no, he's going to send people out and they're going to dig up uh, plants and disturb, uh, disturb the ground and uh, be where they shouldn't be. And No matter what you do, somebody's not going to like it. They're just always disgruntled people. Somebody picks up an arrowhead worth $8, and they stole that from the government. So I guess the government's going to come get them and arrest them, and too many PhDs in government. Bureau of Land Management came in and searched my house uh, four, four years ago. Somebody told them that I had taken something out of a cave in Arizona uh, that was on government land. Well, it wasn't on government land, it was private property, but even if everything they said was true, the statute of limitations had run out 47 years ago. So four years passed and got a letter from them that uh, absolved me of everything, and uh, that was the end of it. Bill's character, I just wonder what I'm gonna do with all this character. <laughs> And he's very bright. There's nothing at all about this man that doesn't uh, speak to uh, how, how smart he is. He's a curious guy. That curiosity has, has led him to a point in his life where he is extremely well off, lives a beautiful lifestyle. He likes to tell stories. He likes to confound people. He likes to put little things out there that has folks guessing. I'm not there to try to pry information out of him. That's not to say that I don't look carefully at everything he said to me, because he's that way, you know, there could be something there. But uh, I don't ask him any specific questions ever, and he doesn't volunteer any specific information ever. So I, it wouldn't be fair. You know, he's, he's really interested in this being something that where the, the playing field is pretty level for people but it's going to take somebody that's intelligent who looks at all these at different aspects i think to find it i don't think anybody's going to stumble upon it this last spot that i've been at i really feel like it's there i've already hit forest up he denies it <laughs> but um you know uh, he tries to get me to go back to one of my first spots and uh and it's a diversion i know i still have about uh something like 4,000 arrowheads. And I tell people I'm saving those because after the next war, I'm gonna make a fortune selling my arrowheads to, to different armies around the world. Einstein had said, I don't know what we'll fight World War III with, but World War IV is gonna be fought with sticks. And the technology is changing so fast. I mean, if your computer is two years old, it's archaic today. Technology is not gonna help you find that treasure. But your mind and your body and your attitude changes as things change. 
it's been a lot of fun, and I've been a lot of places. I've been uh, on top of some mountains. I've been in a lot of hot springs, and when nobody's there, that's great. I just take it all off and throw myself in and wait a while. I've had big bighorn sheep right near me. Uh, bald eagles fly right over my head. I've been up in the mountains the first snowfall of the of the year, which at that point, at that place, was September 30th, maybe. The greatest thrill is going by yourself. You don't know where the edge is unless you go out there and look for it. I always bring something back. Generally speaking, it's, uh, it's some something I found along the way that, that interests me, an owl feather, uh, a mineral specimen, you know, an artifact that somebody lost long ago. Yeah, I have some advice. Read the book and then study the poem over and over. Read it over and over, maybe even memorize it. And then go back and read the book again, looking for hints that are in the book that are going to help you with clues that are in the poem. That's the best advice that I can give. You have to find out, you have to learn the, where the first clue is. They get pro progressively easier after you discover where the first clue is. Forrest has given some good advice. I mean, Forrest has told people to enjoy themselves but not get into danger, don't get into trouble, don't go, you know, places that a 79-year-old man couldn't get to carrying a 42-pound box. Um, and But then again, you haven't seen Forrest, so, you know, you know it might not be your average 79-year-old man. One thing I need to tell people who uh, think they're going to go and do this, you better be in shape. If you think that this guy at 79 was a pushover, you got another thing coming. You were asking me earlier about the reason. Uh, I was at a point in my life where I was ready for some adventure. And um, this was just perfect. I, I mean, I believe I know where it is. I just haven't found the blaze. And that's probably the going to be the toughest part. I've seen a lot of stuff I wouldn't have seen if I hadn't been out there looking. And while a couple of times I thought, oh, yeah, I got it. I know exactly where it is and went there to look. Um, when I came back empty handed, I, I didn't feel disappointed somehow. I, I came away with just more excitement about going out again. Well, Forrest contends that his real mission in life when he wrote this book was to get people up and off the couch and out doing something in the wild, right? And I just roll my eyes, you know, come on. But he sticks to it. He sticks to the story. He is um, passionate about adventure and he's passionate about sharing that love of adventure and treasure seeking with, with other people. An American archetype, if you will. I think the thing that that, uh, that I revere as much as anything is that first little arrowhead that I found when I was nine years old. I still have it, yeah, sure.
My autobiography is in the treasure chest. I put in a little olive jar, rolled it up, printed it at Kinko's. I have to, I have to use a magnifying glass if I want to read it. The olive jar had a, a metal lid, and metal will rust. It's tin, and so I dipped it in hot wax to make it airtight and watertight. Ten thousand years from now. That autobiography is going to be just like it is, and I put it in there. There's an old saying: you can never go home. How many how many encores can a person take? I mean, I've I've played my hand. <laughs> You've been listening to Everything is Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. This episode was produced by Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. The music in this episode was provided by John Kologi, who records under the moniker High Orid. John had a few records come out on Pathetic about 10 years ago that I keep coming back to. It's great headphone music. Definitely give him a listen. You can find links to John's music at our website, everythingisstories.com. Over at the site, you'll also be able to find links to all of our past episodes, our social media profiles, and photos for this episode, which were taken by our friend Ben Grimmie. Do us a favor and head over to Instagram and give us a follow. You can also subscribe to Everything in Stories wherever you listen to podcasts. Every bit helps. Thanks for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing, and everything is stories. Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story. Not his old introspective music and grousing and chewing your liver. Uh-uh, let's get on with the story. Keep me up tonight with this story you're telling me. I want to turn the page. All I ever wanted to be and all I think of myself as being is a storyteller. That's all. I just tell stories. <laughs>